Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing don't listen to this program? Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your Politics with Wheaties program for Saturday. If you're not listening to us on Saturday, but at a later time, through podcast or uh, through uh, on demand... Then hello to you as well. Today we're going to uh, focus on, uh, in the first part of the program, we're going to focus on the uh, event that happened on the 17th of March down at the Multicultural Centre, which was about uh, the No Homeless Ban, which is a response to the Melbourne City Council's attempt to ban homelessness in the city centre uh, by through using uh, some changes to bylaws, the changes include uh, uh, people and requiring a permit to lie down on the street uh, in a sleeping bag. Uh, the other is that uh, if uh, they leave belongings, they'll be taken impounded, and you have to pay a fine. Uh, the, and then there's a re-education process for the public, apparently, to uh, dissuade them from supporting. Uh, the needs of homeless people in the city. The uh, It was uh, a, a gathering, a forum that was a seminar put, brought together by uh, Deakin uh, and uh, array, um, worked to, uh, you know, developed by David uh, Giles, Dr David Giles, who works at Deakin, who has been working hand-in-hand hand on this uh, No Homeless Ban issue. He is an anthropologist who looks at, uh, what is it, he, he, urban uh, environments and how people relate to those in urban environments. Anyway, I, I put together a couple of excerpts from that particular forum. It was packed out. The room was packed out. There were a lot of people there, including Cathy uh, uh, Watt, uh, uh, Councillor Watts was there. She was one of the people who voted against these bylaws. Uh, it was uh, made clear that uh, uh, Mayor Doyle and his team, who support the bylaws, were invited to come to the meeting as well as the police, but uh, they all declined. Now, first up, we've got uh, a little piece by Spike. Now, Spike, you'll know, is a broadcaster on 3CR. He's also uh, part of the Ruminations team. The Ruminations is the only program 
that's made by people, uh, by and for people who have experienced homelessness. Now, Spike is part of the Homeless Persons Union. He has other strings to his bow, but uh, he speaks from experience of homelessness, long-term experience of homelessness. He's not homeless now, but... uh, uh, we're talking, you know, uh, de- over a decade of experience of homelessness, so I'm sure that doesn't just wash off with water. But anyway, hear what Spike had to say at that meeting. OK, so I'd actually like to invite Spike to perhaps pick up on where that okay. talk yeah. ended. And have you got the mic? Uh, that one, the one that yeah, yeah, works the best. Mic. OK. There you go. OK. Thank you. Hello. Yeah. OK. okay. Wait. Oh. Go. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Uh, I look. I don't have a, a particularly sophisticated um, analysis of what is going on in Melbourne. For me, it is it is really uh, a really basic fundamental in that. It's a quite a basic and fundamental understanding in the sense that this was all public space. You know, the the housing the housing problems that we face are because uh, the people who make decisions have decided that they're not going to invest in public housing, and that they're gonna that they're gonna give. Negative gearing, uh, they're going to allow people to negative gear and give capital gains tax um, uh, discounts to people that have capital. And as um, David said, it, it's part of neoliberalism. But what that doesn't, what that, unfortunately, what that doesn't explain is the impact that that has on the individual. For people that are experiencing homelessness, not, you know, one one of the one of the most troubling parts of this whole bloody campaign has been the way in which the uh, people, uh, Robert Doyle and the police commissioner and other figure, you know, people in in uh, within within our sort of commentators in our culture, Neil Mitchell and people of that type have disparaged, vilified and demonised people, questioned their character, questioned whether they're genuine, asking people, are they really homeless? Do they really need to beg? What? Not everyone comes from a middle-class background. And I don't want to disparage middle-class people, but no one... You know, there are people who have mental... You know, that where both parents may have mental illnesses or have a drinking problem and relationships break up. Um, people lose their jobs. People have car accidents. There's a guy that sleeps down here who's 71. Who's 71, Robert Kramer. He's been sleeping out here for three months. He's been itinerant his whole life. And and I suppose what... Um, what I'm trying to say is is that we we don't we 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 we're making it really difficult to, for people to find a, a space within our community because it's been incredibly individualized and individualized and 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 sort of our sense of looking after each other is gone um, and we. 
And for people that are experiencing homelessness, they're living below the poverty line because benefits are below the poverty line. They're 50% below the poverty line. They haven't increased for 20 years. Um, there's no access to public amenities. <coughs> unless service, Apart from services like the living room um, and some services at co-health, there's very, you can't go to a toilet at, a, at, a, at a, pu- a public train station. They're all locked. Every, every, every toilet at, at, a, at, a, at a park is locked. So we've got no access to public amenities. What, what, what David was saying about the, the encroachment of, of the market on, onto the public commons is a fact. They're stealing what is ours. It belongs to us and we should be pissed. We should be angry. We shouldn't be trying to convince them that we're right. They, you know, the, the, the craziness of, of this whole thing, what I find quite crazy is that we're trying to convince the community that this is a bad idea. Why aren't people freaked out that you can't, that it's going to be illegal to sleep on a footpath? Since when has it been okay for... Since when has social cleansing been acceptable? They went to war in Yugoslavia to fight ethnic cleansing. But social cleansing is acceptable. We, we've been, we, 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 the union's been to um, housing estates where they've actually knocked them down. Uh, they were built for people, return service people from the Second <coughs> World War and they've knocked them down because they don't want public, they don't want public housing people in their suburb. What, what, what does that mean? What and I and I suppose it means that they don't want a particular type of person in their suburb, and that's what this law is all about. They want to cleanse. They want to cleanse the streets of poverty and homelessness. They don't want to see the manifestations of their greed, of their. They're selfish, they're narcissistic, you know, like, and, and, and I, I should be more specific in who, who, who's they, you know, like, the, and, and as David pointed out, the politicians have moved out of this space and they become people managers because the people who, re, who make the decisions are the banks and, and uh, you know, who, and, and that's why... You know, you see in Richmond now, if you go to Centrelink in Richmond right now, and what you'll see now is towers. And there used to be factories in Richmond where people worked, where people brought up their families, and that's no longer the case because there's no room for families. There's only room for people that, that probably have houses um, out in, 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 in leafy areas but have apartments in Richmond so they can work in town. And then they have cafes for them downstairs. So that, you know, there's certain there's a certain class that's being catered for, and 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 you know, young and and one of the stats is that the, that the city of Melbourne's really concerned about is the increase in the cohort of people under 25 that are, are sleeping rough. We've just had a royal commission into into sexual institutional sexual abuse. We've had a royal commission into um, family violence. Sixty percent of the people experiencing homelessness are women and their and their kids. Where do they think the people who have experienced sexual abuse and and and, and domestic violence? Where do they think they're sleep? They're not sleeping at home. 
they, they're not comfortable in their middle class. They're not, you know, you can't stay at home if your old man's bashing you or, and your mum can't protect you. you. You can't stay there. You have to leave. You have to leave. And that's what you don't, no one walks out. And, and so when, when people's, um, uh, reasons for becoming homeless uh, uh, are questioned, and he, and he he's saying we're making it too easy. <coughs> Robert Dahl saying we're making it too easy for people to be homeless because we're offering them a meal, we're making it too fucking easy. We're giving them coffee. We're making it too fucking easy because they can have a shower. That, he he says that he's made it a personal fucking vendetta. He's made it his personal. He's he's politicised this issue to the point where it is be, it's become the Robert Doyle issue, and he's only the mayor. He's the fucking mayor. That's all he is. Okay, I'll finish. I just I, I, no one walks out of their house. Regardless of what those talking heads say, no one walks out of the house and says, I'm going to sleep rough. We, we've been trying, you know, and I'm sure you, you, everyone's been involved in trying to get the submissions to uh, against the, um, the changes to the bylaws. And the most difficult people to reach were the, the people who were doing it the hardest, the people at Enterprise Wharf, the people sleeping under the bridge at Flinders Street. The, the, they're the people that they... They, we've collectively, and I suppose, and I'm part of this as well, we collectively have succeeded in crushing people's spirits. And this, this bylaw, this, this fucking, this, this tragedy, it uh, contributes to, to their, their loss of hope in life because, you know, I don't know, you know, you know, drugs, I've got no problem with drugs, trust me, but, um, Synthetic pot, you know, cheap synthetic pot, um, and, and no hope. And being okay, so I'll finish with this. I promise. When they talk about pathways out of homelessness, this is another thing that really pisses me. The media doesn't do its fucking job. When when the Flinders Street, uh, when the people were sleeping in Flinders Street, when they talked about housing options. The people out in the suburbs thought they were being offered what they fucking what they've got. That they've got, you know, two bedrooms, a fireplace, a TV shower. No, what they were being offered is rooming house. Is it, if anyone's lived in a rooming house, if anyone's lived, you can you can live with up to forty people and pay two hundred and thirty dollars a week to share a shower with you know with twenty other people, and 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 uh, and maybe you get a meal. And at Osram they do they do um, uh, uh, they do surprise checks through your room like you're in prison like shock uh, I forget what's the proper name for them when they go for your shit when they go stormtroopers <laughs> but they do they do they have but it is it, but it, it, it is it, it is a minimum security and and the state government's given them a, another hundred million dollars to build another hundred bed facility. For what they call a pathway out of... That's not a pathway out of homelessness. That's institutionalisation. I spent seven years in a rooming house. And I, I'm still recovering, trust me. And uh, I, I can't think... You know, Living under that bridge would be horrible because of the exhaust fumes and all that shit. But at least they know the people they're, they're around. 
but you know, it, it, these pathways out of homelessness that they're talking about, unless it's um, long term, secure, affordable public housing, where that that where the people who are providing the houses have are forced to um, uh, 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 take notice for want of a better way of putting it, of the Human Rights Charter, which community housing mobs aren't forced to, I don't believe. Um, yeah, there's no pathway out of homelessness because uh, they don't exist. And so the idea that assertive outreach can work, uh, unless... Yeah, well, it could work, but that's another conversation. Uh, but, yeah, that's all I've got to say. Cheers. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. You are, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're featuring an event that was on the 17th of March down at the Multicultural Hub in at Elizabeth Street, and it was about the No Homeless Ban, and we've just been listening to Spike's fantastic speech about uh, it, it changes your perspective from the view of a person who actually is part of community as opposed to being having uh, laws imposed upon you from above and he's quite right it's become the Robert Doyle issue hasn't it it's it's a little bit like uh, what I was thinking the other day when I was reading a book about uh, Vietnam War and I keep saying to myself it's not the Vietnam War it's actually the war that America had in Vietnam anyway this is the war that Robin Doyle is having on the homeless anyway well let's move on there was a, a person there called Melanie Raymond from Youth Projects, which is a very interesting um, thing that's been going on for quite a long time. And I'm, I must confess, I knew nothing about it. Uh, but she had a very interesting perspective on this whole issue. Youth Projects is a long, long time service in the CBD. And there'll be shots there. That's of our uh, training cafe, social enterprise training cafe in Hosea Lane, where a long-term unemployed homeless youth are getting work experience. And our night nurses who go out tonight, tomorrow night, Sunday night, with backpacks doing healthcare on the street in some pretty lonely places. So there's just some images behind there of the work at Youth Projects. And particularly I wanted to focus on all the topics around some of the stuff that <coughs> concerns us around healthcare because we are a primary health clinic amongst other things. And this means... Uh, 3,578 medical appointments last year and that this is a very special place where people who are doing it tough can come to for virtually any need met and they don't do well in the primary health system turning up at a hospital or an emergency department or a local GP research shows and we know from what people tell us that they get turned away that the average GP and pharmacist has said in research, we don't know anything about homelessness, we don't know what to do, and uh, we feel really at a loss. Uh, hospitals think people are homeless or drug seeking, they'll get poorer quality health care, and they'll leave things until they're really acute and desperate. And nobody should have to put their physical health on the line because they're homeless. So, for us, how do you, if it is more difficult for somebody and more risky to simply be in the city so you can have some continuity of care to see a doctor or a counsellor. If that is risking everything, risking your belongings, risking fines that you cannot pay just because you want to access health care, never mind the 9,000 showers and the 6,000 loads of laundry that we do and the 11,400 free phone calls, this is life-saving stuff. 
So decentralising and making it more difficult, more risky and unsafe, I think is a really cruel thing to do. But the City of Melbourne has in place, up until now, some good language, some good policy that, that normally wouldn't give you much cause for concern. In their homelessness strategy, if they had read it first, before proposing this ban, they would have seen that their job is to know our city, research, consult, refresh and share our knowledge on homelessness in Melbourne. To be inclusive, respect, hear, welcome and include those who are homeless in our services, activities and events. Number three, develop skills, provide opportunities to enhance personal resilience, develop skills and strengthen social inclusion. Does any of this sound like what these bylaws are going to do? Create pathways, work with our partners to courageously advocate for change and create sustainable pathways out of homelessness. Where is the courageous advocacy in this? Can anybody see a shred of it? Because I can't. Health and wellbeing. Foster partnerships with health and wellbeing services to ensure improved health outcomes for people experiencing homelessness. And that is what I'm trying to you know, talk to you about is it's in their own strategy, so making it harder with these petty laws that actually serve no purpose. It's heartless. I think that we need to think through, as David was talking about, Youth Projects has over 300 young people on its caseload in its employment service in Glenroy. So stretching virtually from Bell Street all the way to Craigieburn, Sunbury, Melton, out that way, uh, over 300 young people. Uh, already 20% of them are homeless, probably 30%. 70% have a chronic illness and they're unemployed and just hanging on. Uh, the idea that we can make life any more difficult for people whose background and childhood and the start they got in life and the way the system then further entrenched their poverty, I can't see a single evidence base for any of this that doesn't actually make the problem the City of Melbourne wants to address harder for them to address. That's the bit I can't get. Nobody is served through this. When Spike talked about the loneliness, one of the missing pieces is that people see themselves um, as a family. We're all human. We need, for a lot of us, most of us, social connection. And for the people at Youth Projects, in our service, outside our service, there's the opportunity to have what everybody else has got, and that's someone to talk to, someone who knows and understands you, someone who cares what you say, someone who'll talk back to you, someone who won't judge you. And why is that suddenly illegal to seek the same things that the people at Brunetti are seeking? They've just got a cup of coffee and a table and chair, but it is no different. And I think we really miss that piece around loneliness. Um, I'm not sure if it scrolled through. There was the whiteboard from Wednesday's consultation with uh, the uh, Youth Project's Consumer Advisory Committee where they, they talked very much from the heart. They will be putting in their own submission, in their own words. Um, it would have gone in this afternoon, but what, that was one of the things. And what you said about making people feel worse, where they are saying, um, this just makes me feel like nothing. I can't go any low, lower. Um, it's the message that is being sent to people who are already vulnerable and already feeling bad. Could you make them feel any lower? 
So it is concerning that people who are trying to do the right thing and trying to provide the services for people who need help, particularly critical care services, are going to have a tough time trying to make sure those people still get the help they need, whether it's in outreach like the night nurses and the foot patrol or whether it's inside the clinic. Um, our job is already hard. It's worse for the people we're trying to help, making it even harder. Again, what is the point of that? The cost and inefficiency, our GPs are saying, why, we don't want to spend more medical time writing letters for court appointments and fee waivers and things like that. We're doctors and nurses, we didn't come here to write letters. They have to do that for Mikey fines and other things. So let's just have another way of, of time-consuming paperwork that, again, serves no purpose. I can't stress that enough. I did want to read to you, um, and I will use your laptop for these two late submissions that two people in uh, Hosea Lane gave me today. Um, and this is um, from uh, uh, someone who is homeless who I know well, and he wanted me to just help him put that in. He's written it down. I have been a resident of the CBD for 10 years and sleep rough for that time. There's also about 20 other people that you see sleeping rough on the side of the road at night. We have all been together for a long time. We eat together, sleep together, and make sure people are taking their meds and stuff. Um, we make sure that we are okay, and we have become a family. I think that it would be a bad idea to split us up, so we need to find somewhere for us to go and sleep at night, so we are safe and our things are safe and don't get hurt which happens all the time. So I'm asking you, Council, can you have some faith in us and find it in your hearts to keep us together, not split us up? Thank you for your time. I don't think he has anything that he needs to say thank you for, but I thought that's very heartfelt about explaining. There's people, see the, pe see the person, see the individual, um, rather than see some bad optics. If this is about people who have homes who are occasionally inconvenienced by the look of homelessness, why would we be catering to that? When has that become a priority? So, uh, Youth Project's submission that went in today is talking about the very deep and complex issues that we are working to help alleviate, try and work with people who are homeless, uh, help them reach their goals and continue to provide a very critical service um, and we can see no sense in this. This is a homeless span. They don't even use the word homelessness, but we know what it is. And we won't be tricked by language. It has the impact of making homelessness risky and criminalised and impossible. But then I think it's a ban and we need to call it that. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... Ah! Oh, so sweet. Uh, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and we were just listening to Mel Melanie Raymond from the Youth Projects, and it was part of a... Uh, we're featuring an event that happened on the 17th of March about the No Homeless Ban. Uh, the uh, submission that Melanie was talking about was uh, a, a submission process 28 days after the original decision by the uh, subcommittee for the Melbourne City Council that put forward the uh, bylaws changes. 
uh, it's uh, the event was on the last day, and uh, they offered uh, uh, for submissions, and they offered uh, the meeting the opportunity to put forward submissions. And as the speakers were speaking, a whole range of people put in submissions in that last push. Uh, there won't be any uh, uh, final. Uh, th- talks or you know any uh decision made until uh, uh a while it won't happen until sort of like april or may so there's still a process going on within the council to distance itself in time from that original meeting however we at the at the uh night there was a very interesting person there richard foster not that the other two weren't interesting or any of the other speakers either but uh, richard foster who was an ex-councillor, was there. And this is what he had to say. Thanks very much. And thanks, uh, firstly, to everyone for being here. I want you to take a look around. You've packed out a room tonight. And that means you're all passionate about this incredibly important issue. It means that you're human. It means that you're actually worried about the people that we're here to, to advocate for. Um, so thank you for doing that. I'm sure you've got better things to do on a Friday night, but maybe not this Friday night. Um, I also want to acknowledge somebody else in the room who uh, was one of my former colleagues uh, on the City of Melbourne. She's still there today and I'll tell you that she's probably the only one uh, that's prepared to advocate on this issue on the Council. And that's Councillor Jackie Watts. Um, She's the Deputy Chair. chair of my old portfolio, the People's City portfolio that takes in homelessness and social policy and a number of other things. And I know how passionate Jackie is about this and she's been going tooth and nail at it over the last few weeks, um, doing everything that she can to try to prevent uh, what's happening and what's taking place now. Um, Unfortunately for Jackie, and I I know Jackie well, she's a very good friend of mine, uh, she's a lone voice. So she needs all the support that she can get and that's why she's here tonight. So thank you Jackie, it's important to have you along. Um, I also just wanted to talk very, very quickly about what a livable city is um, because it's come up a couple of times tonight and most of us here know Melbourne is not livable for everyone irrespective of the way Robert Doyle wants to carry on about it and irrespective of the way the media carries on about it. The livable city title is granted to the city of Melbourne by The Economist magazine. (laughs) Now, The Economist magazine set up this survey essentially... And, look, its purpose is, you know... is relevant in, in some ways, just not relevant in the way that we keep, or the media and Robert Doyle keep portraying it. The survey was engineered specifically for global companies so that they could ascertain the most effective place for their employees to be when they're looking at where they're going to set up offices and headquarters and things like that. And Melbourne ranks, as we know, pretty highly on that scale, if not the highest on that scale the last few years, um, because it's a good place for people earning more than 200 grand a year to be. Um, That's because people earning at at that level don't need to worry about public health care. They don't need to worry about accommodation. They don't need even to worry about the state of public transport. So we need to keep this in context. Yes, all right, according to The Economist magazine, it's the most livable city in the world for people earning a shitload of dosh, but probably debatable for everybody else. I also just want to make an apology before I say too much more. If there are any Robert Doyle supporters in the room, um, I do apologise to you. You're probably not going to be very happy with what I have to say. So in many respects, I think we all know it's hard to believe that in 2017, in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we still have to have a conversation about homelessness. For some, it's a conversation about how best to keep those who are... how best to help those who are sleeping rough 
or how to arrest cycles of homelessness and provide meaningful support to the most needy in our community. And that's the way that I prefer to see it. But for others, it's about making our streets look tidy and simple. And it's about finding somewhere else for us sleepers to be. It must be incredibly uncomfortable to see people sleeping rough when you know you're not doing anything to help them. The local law proposed by Robert Doyle and his councillors is nothing more than an especially slow, obtuse and insensitive response to one of the most serious social problems our city faces. We've heard well-founded suggestions tonight from both sides of me about what could be done to genuinely assist rough sleepers and move towards solving the problem. We should understand that none of these solutions are easy to implement and that's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. It's not easy. But until we accept that these problems are not solved simply nor quickly, we won't be any closer to the solution that we all want. But let's have a look at Doyle's recent history with this. In 2013, Doyle implemented a program under which he found, uh, under which those found begging in Melbourne would be hauled before the magistrates' court by the police and forced to undergo what was called the diversion program. Now, some of you might be familiar with the diversion program, so I apologise that you're going to hear a little bit more about it now. But for those who aren't, the diversion program operates right across Victoria, um, but it's only for some offences, and it offers first-time offenders usually the, the opportunity to address the reason they've committed the offence in the first place, with a bit of a trade-off. Um, generally, they'll walk away with no penalty or conviction. Um, but, of course, with little understanding about how this diversion program works, and even less appreciation of the challenges that rough sleepers experience, the plan's been a complete failure. Most of those arrested for begging don't qualify for diversion because they have prior offences. So what happens? Of those that do qualify, I'm told that less than a third end up attending court. You can imagine why that would be. There's a lot else going on in a rough sleeper's life apart from a diversion program and a requirement to attend a court. Especially when you look at the reason that they were arrested in the first place. And that was for begging. So this means that they've now committed another offence and they're now subject to a further penalty. And so the cycle continues. How this addresses homelessness or helps homeless people baffles me. Why are Lord Mayor, with the resources available to assess this properly, as a policy response still thinks it's a good idea is even more baffling. More recently, he's been struggling to keep any consistency with his own thoughts. On the 19th of January this year in The Age, he said, There are cities around the world where they simply bundle homeless people up and ship them out. I'd hate to think that we were ever that sort of city we need to address this problem not just do a cosmetic clean-up. Now, less than 24 hours later, in the same paper, this is what he had to say on January 20 about the local law being put to council. I'm happy to put this proposal before councillors at our first meeting if it's Victoria Police's recommendation and they guarantee they'll enforce it. I welcome any move by the police to bring an end to what has become a blight on our city and the City of Melbourne continues to work with the police to do that. Arguing with this guy is like being hit with a warm lettuce. You know, it, it, there's a certain futility about it and it, it, it has a decided lack of impact. So Doyle has form on the issue. In, a couple, in the last couple of years, he's called the police and bundled up people in the city square, in Enterprise Park, the Fitzroy Gardens and Flinders Street, there's probably more, and forced them to move on. Even when short-term accommodation options are offered, and they're just that, they're short-term and obviously offer no sustainable solutions for rough sleepers, how much of this knee-jerking does it take before he, him and his other councillors will understand that this just doesn't work? <laughs> Nonetheless, he now claims he sought advice from the police, not the community sector, 
not rough sleepers, not the Homelessness Advisory Committee convened by the council itself, but the police. <laughs> and predictably, the police have provided him with a solid law enforcement response. This is, the, this is something that they're trained to do, provide law enforcement advice, and that's what they've done. If police and the courts were really any good at fixing social problems, our jails would be empty by now. <laughs> Doyle and the others have been looking for a silver bullet, and it's a silver bullet that doesn't exist. It's undergraduate, feeble, populist attempts to erase homelessness from the cityscape that are just insulting. They're ignorant and they're downright harmful. They might think that rough sleeping is a blight, but Doyle and his councillors' attitudes to homeless people in Melbourne would have to be one of the most unsightly interruptions to city life that I've seen anywhere in other cities. When the UN's against you, when the evidence is in and it's against you, when two-thirds, two-thirds of LA residents just recently voted to tax themselves more so that they could provide more support to rough sleepers, how much do you need to tell you that you're on the wrong path? We need to wage a war on poverty, not on the poor. This is why I proposed at the last election a focused expansion of crisis accommodation services in the city with support services to help people into long-term accommodation options and not just throw them back on the street when the short-term options evaporate. I also proposed 24-hour safe spaces for rough sleepers and an advocacy unit to tie these efforts to state and federal government initiatives. But there is no easy fix, as I said. These are some things that we could do now if Doyle and his councillors were willing to really address the problem and not just blame the victims. When you target the most vulnerable in our community, you've reached a pretty low level. As he stumbles his way through a trouble-prone mayoralty, he's leaving behind in his wake a polarised community where the rich are richer, the poor are greater in number, poorer financially, more disconnected, and disenfranchised, and most of all, crying out for genuine leadership. It's leadership that they need that represents them too, that doesn't leave them behind because they can't make a campaign donation or because they can't afford to eat with him at Florentino Grossi. And after eight and a half years as Lord Mayor, the record of his looks pretty shaky at best. When we talk about rough sleepers, we do it like it's a them and us proposition, something I've always struggled with. Because it's not, I don't think, it's not a them and us proposition. Rough sleepers are us. We're all human beings. We all need to look out and care for each other. Isolating rough sleepers as people different to us is a falsehood. Rough sleepers are us when we're abused by a family member or someone close to us and we have to leave. They're us when we're mentally ill and the symptoms of our illness become overwhelming. And they're us because of abuse or a sheer lack of opportunities or choices. And when the system fails us, we have nowhere to be. Whatever you may think of rough sleepers, they are us and we are them. We are all only one decision away from being on the street ourselves. <coughs> and it's something that I remind myself of every day. Doing what it takes to really address the problem means doing more than making it someone else's problem. It calls for leadership. It's clearly leadership that we don't have now. In 1979, an old Holden was parked up near the, the old Russell Street Police Complex before it was turned into apartments. And it was covered, found covered in City of Melbourne parking tents. Now, it turns out 
the car was sitting there because an old homeless fellow was sleeping in it, was living in it. And that person, as I discovered many years later, was my grandfather. Goes to show you that cycles can be broken, but not by doing this. Not by doing this. People who have to sleep rough don't do it by choice. Why would you? They only do it because it's the best option and often the only option that exists. So whilst we understand that Melbourne is not actually livable for everyone, what is stopping us from making it livable for them? It's only policy settings run by policy levers that people like Robert Doyle and his councillors have their fingerprints all over. It's not, it's not a problem that we can arrest our way out of. The solution lies in, in real, meaningful commitments, not platitudes about how much you care while you're planning to arrest them, as the Deputy Lord Mayor Aaron Wood would have you believe. Investing well in supported crisis accommodation is what it takes. Providing safe spaces and bringing other levels of government to the table when you're in local government is what it takes. It takes being a positive force for change and not just a crippling impact on the people who need you the most. Thank you. <coughs>
is uh, so that we can stop in communities and talk with people about why we're doing it and show some films. Because there are actually, even though, um, yeah, as, as I said before, there's quite a lot of silence um, in the mainstream around West Papua, uh, there are a lot of resources um, like short films and films uh, that people have made over the years. Um, so uh, how did you come up with the idea? Because it's a brilliant concept. Yeah, it was, um, well, there are a lot of walks um, out there uh, that happen for various causes. Yeah, freedom, causes. freedom yeah, walking. Yeah, 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 that's right. So it's got a, um, a good ancestry, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we, yeah, so Emma King, who's um, an amazing activist and um, mentor, yeah, she first sort of put the idea out there and then we were thinking, okay, what, what, how can we make it relevant to West Papua? And, um, yeah. And that's how it came about. So who's we? Uh, White boy? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I am white. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. That's what they say on the, in that movie. It's like lost a a, a vista baby. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working with the Melbourne West Papuan crew. And they've Uh, got an office down in Docklands, right? Uh, yeah, they have a political office in Docklands, but uh, also the community is um, yeah quite strong in Melbourne because um, 43 um, Papuans came uh, 11 years ago on that canoe, as a lot of people probably already know. And um, yeah, most of them are still living in Melbourne. So, And of course, 3CR has yes, the voice, voice of, of West, West Papua. Papua. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, quite a f- yeah, the crew from the radio um, are part of it as well. Um, and yeah, we're organising it together. Yeah, so it starts on April the 26th, you said. Yeah, in Geelong. A- and uh, can people come be part of it? Yes, yep. So, Oh, and also, uh, is it like a walkathon where people can sponsor people? Yeah, yep. We're, we're having a fundraiser on the 8th of April uh, so that we can raise some funds for food and, um, like, petrol and stuff for the support cars. Um, and that's going to be at Hot Shots in Footscray. And also, if people want to, yeah, uh, support or sponsor the... Um, walkers, they can contact the Voice of West Papua at 3CR and, yeah. Um, Have you got an address for Hot Shots? It's down by the river, isn't it? Uh, or we can look it it's up. It's on Bar- Barclay Street, I Yeah, think. oh, Barclay Street. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, and, um, yeah, so we'd love people to come down to the fundraiser. That There's going to be bands and, yeah, um, you can speak to the community as well. In um, fact, in fact, uh, the Voice of West Papua people have been really busy because yes, actually, <laughs> <laughs> there's actually a fundraiser tomorrow, the 26th of March, 6pm yep. to 9.30pm at the Bendigo Hotel. That's 125 Johnson Street in Collingwood. And uh, if you want to know more about the uh, Walk with West Palpua, you can go down there and have a chat with them and you can also go and listen to some fantastic bands because, of course, we know they don't just import their wonderful ideas. They import fantastic music. Yes. Yes. And, yeah, the... Behind this uh, fundraiser, we really wanted to get the Pacific community together. So uh, pretty much all of the artists are uh, from Pacific Islands and there'll be poets and, yeah, musos also dancing 
And, that, that's yeah. a really uh, interesting thing to me. I went to New Zealand ages ago and I went to the museum there and what I realised that in New Zealand they look to the Pacific. They yep. actually see it. Yes. In Australia, for some reason or other, we are blind. Mm. And that's one of the gifts that the West Papuans have given us, isn't yep. it? Yeah, well, it's so uh, inspiring to see seven nations Pacific nations uh, stand up at the United Nations and like say that they're concerned about what's happening in West Papua and yeah it's like they're these um, like small populations and really like their voice is not you know uh, very loud on the international stage but they're still getting up there. Yeah, they're um, brave and they're standing yeah, up and yep. waiting to In be solidarity. Counted. So yeah. yeah, it's it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, you were down at the courts the other day, weren't you? Yeah, on Thursday we were down supporting Ty, uh, who's the man who uh, on January six got up on top of the roof of the Indonesian consulate with the West Papuan flag and. Yeah, cause that video went viral Which in was Indonesia. Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, so he. It's very quiet. It's it's a fantastic. Mm. It's almost. Uh, silent. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just gentle and silent. Yeah. Uh, he just opens up the gate, and walks over, jumps, yep. gets up there, and lays the beautiful flag out. Yeah. 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 So he, the Indonesian government, put a lot of pressure, um, even through the Australian media, um, covered it. Uh, yeah, telling Australia that they should arrest him and um, crack down on that because they were very offended. Uh, they're not offended by genocide, but no, they're offended by someone. By that- Australia um, recognising that genocide or allowing that genocide to be uh, drawn attention to. The same thing with uh, the the materials that were found in Perth in the military um yeah, the, the teachers. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, so we were with Ty at court on uh, Thursday, and um, yeah, he. Well, all he could be charged with is trespass. trespassing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he was fined five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, and and everybody put the hat out. What is it? What did the yeah. CFMEU say? They did a pull up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that was a classic uh, case of more bang for your buck yep. than you ever expected. Yes. Yep. Thank you very much for coming in and telling us about this, Rebecca. No worries. And we're going to go out with the wonderful band Blue King Brown uh, with uh, Moment of Truth before we go to This Is The Week That Was. <laughs> Oh, the 
solidarity Bricky team listener when with a bit of luck it'll only be a couple of more weeks before this segment will be able to offend and insult as much as we like those who deserve to be offended and insulted without any fear of facing the undemocratic anti-free speech law that has shackled the week that was for so long. Once they get rid of this offend and insult nonsense, we'll be able to say what we really think. And so will all those responsible politicians like caring business class thinkers George Christian man and a woman family son and former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses and Kevin and screws the workers and recently formed his very own party Corey St. Bernardi forced out because he couldn't offend an insult and the usual suspect Lord Rupert of Wapping Hacks and the dear baby true blue Aussie Jesus lobby which must have the right to offend and insult with dear baby Jesus compassion and love thy neighbour not love in that way and all those other lovers of democracy and free speech and they all defended posthumously the recently deceased Lord Rupert brilliant cartoonist late great Tiny described him yesterday Bill look it's not racist and after a panel audience member yelled that look I'm not racist was racist all those dedicated defenders of free speech through Lord Rupert's great true blue Aussie responsible quality journalist broadsheet demanded an apology because attacking look it's not racist and them is offensive and insulting and shows just how low the long-haired commie greeny wooden work in an iron black armband lot will go the depths to which they'll sink and how they have captured the ABC well, we know that. Commies like Amanda and Tom and Nikki, long-haired commies, all of them. How much further to the right must the ABC go to prove it isn't left before that lot stopped describing it as a branch of the Fourth International? Hope that continual, repeated, often enough, etc. accusation doesn't come under harassment, by the way. Oh, no, if they're happy with harassment, which only other people would employ, it, it can't be. Although, having said that, our exclusive item last week, revealing the government is sitting in the cabinet room, burping and farting to keep the nation's lights on, which included the bum department accidentally getting into the face mask department, causing a gasping stampede for the windows and fresh air, is not repeat not offending or insulting them and we must have the right to say these things offending and insulting must cover truly serious offence and insult such as US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald trample the paws very own security forces declaring Donald lied just because Donald lied he has every right to be offended and insulted whereas his predecessor whom he lied about has no case to be offended or insulted. So, hope that explains what this big, critically important national issue is all about, listener. No lies when it comes to the closure of hazel coal. I'm sorry, no, hazel wood, which should be called haze of coal, which the aforementioned former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, says is being closed by the socialist government. No, no, not the Dan pejorative state government. No, no. In a philosophical treatise in the Lord Rupert tabloids, Tiny puts it down to the French socialist government. 
Thank goodness for tiny or we'd never have known. French socialist government putting pressure on the French owners of what the state government used to own. Look, tiny did all he could to prevent this catastrophe. I scrapped the carbon tax. I reduced the renewable energy target. Reduced the renewable energy target. But despite those steps in the right direction, steps in the right direction, and he certainly got the direction right, the impact of renewables was threatening the national economy by closing haze of coal, and Tiny also said he doesn't call it carbon pollution. So you don't call carbon pollution carbon pollution, Tiny? No. And he asked... Why is it right and proper for China and India to use true blue Aussie coal while we can't? While we can't. And ignoring the minor fact that we can and do, we may have to support Tiny here. Let's get behind him and ban China and India from using true blue Aussie coal. But listener, hoping you can explain an element of the greatest little economic order of them all, I have just a bit of trouble understanding. It is important when these places close and that so-called renewable timber responsible caring employer also in Gippsland is another example, important to have a transition program for workers and communities affected, but... As these companies walk away with stuffed pockets from exploiting these natural resources for eons, how come it's taken for granted by the great responsible corporates and the media and often workers and communities themselves that the public purse suddenly has a role in the greatest little economic order? How come it's assumed the public purse must meet the costs of cleaning up the corporate mess and its human consequences? I'm sure there's a simple explanation, but if you could let me know, listener, why don't they blockade with their malicious threatening timber trucks the timber company office? And as yet another uncivilised evil terrorist attack hits the sophisticated civilised world capitals, London this week, great Democrats like former Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country Big Supremo Tiny Blyer, and I'm sure the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo here in those dark ages, must ponder why do these people whom we so care about so help to overthrow evil governments and bring the great benefits of liberty, freedom and democracy maintained by maintaining our trained killer presence in their countries hate us. What have we done to them? Whatever happened to a bit of gratitude? No gratitude for poor Nigel doing his bit for law and order. We finished last week commenting on that rebuff of the True Blue Aussie Smash the Union's Jackboots Con Mission and its Fuhrer, Nigel Hodge Kiss the Bosses, by a commie greeny judge for bringing what he called a trivial matter before him. Trivial. Two evil union officials had entered a workplace they happened to be passing, an airport, without seeking the boss's permission and had a chat and a cup of tea with a mate. What's trivial trivial about that? They should never see the light of day again and and wouldn't if Nigel got his law-abiding way. And we concluded, maybe it's time we had a good hard look at the sort of people we put on the bench. We can't have maverick judges suggesting the law should use a bit of common sense. Well, good news on that front this week.
to balance that, a sensible decision showing respect for the law. The fair work, true bluewazzy, no longer work choices, just looks like it con mission, has ruled that a maritime worker with 30 years in the industry committed a sackable offence by calling that great friend of the workers, Chris Lye again, caring employer's hero of the maritime dispute, he of the balaclavas and dogs and Dubai train killer scab setup, who recently chaired Cruel the Workers' Ports, sackable offence by calling Chris Lye again, a pig on Facebook. Poor Chris, a pig. Although the commissioner didn't explain where it, where it was okay to call Chris Lye again a pig, but not content with condemning the worker to unemployment after 30 years, Deputy Commission Big Supremo Reg Hamilton, the boss's side, played headmaster. He also appeared to show a less than respectful approach to management and to management policy. One would expect better after 30 years of employment. Come on, we reckon we'd expect nothing less after 30 years of exploit or employment, especially where Chris Lyergen's concerned. Who's Reg kidding? Where's he been? Obviously hasn't had to slave his guts out for a living. The pig comment arose because Chris, true to form, was attempting to force a 12% pay cut on the workers. Well, not force, convince them it made sense. And we have to agree with Reg that workers must respect Chris and a management that wants to slash their wages. After all, they would have had the workers' interests at heart, and slashing workers' wages is not showing disrespect for your workforce. Chris would never disrespect workers or unions. Finally, as footy season kicks off, have to admit in some contests it's hard to know who to barrack for. Take this difference between the banks and developers over banks worrying about the security of loans for small jerry-built apartments proliferating as they attract investors who wouldn't be seen dead living in them themselves, and indeed many are just left vacant, but what a tough choice. Who do we support? Banks or developers? And then there's this aborted match between evil union-smashing lawyer-turned-big-time investor Michael Croker, that's evil unions, not evil Michael, of course, and former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations Peter Root the Workers in the Caring Business Class Party State Supremo blockbuster. Aborted because Croker's opponent almost did the croak bit. Poor Pete had a minor stroke, they tell us. Pity it wasn't pre-1996 when he rooted the workers. A stroke of bad luck for evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. But again, imagine sitting in the outer with a Go Croker flag in one hand, a root him, root the workers flag in the other, thinking, which flag do I wave? Good morning. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've got Noah on the line. How are you, Dr. Noah Purcell? How are you? Uh, I'm great, thanks, Annie. How are you? Yeah, good. Great to hear your voice. 
Thank you. Likewise. Sorry we missed each other last weekend. Not sure what the technical problem was, but... Oh, I don't know either. Uh, But the fantastic thing is it's uh, changed my mind. I'm not going to tell anybody what's on the show until it actually happens. Yes. Okay, cool. (laughs) Cool. Well, here we are. um, Everyone now knows. (laughs) Okay. Um, There's a variety of things I wanted to talk to you about, Uh, some local, some uh, international. One of the things that's been most on my mind but uh, is completely out of the news is what's going on in Sudan. And Sudan is one of those things that you're an expert on, in fact, aren't you? Yes, I haven't kept up with it as much as I used to. Um, But, yeah, I still keep my ear to the ground. uh, mainly in North Sudan, but occasionally, you know, the stories in South Sudan aren't very uh, positive at all. There's not much optimism about uh, what's happening in that uh, new country. No. Um, or, or in the North, to be honest, even though there is uh, some sense that, uh, that, you know, the sort of intensity of the warfare that uh, the country had a decade ago um, has sort of eased. But, yeah, it's still, it's, it's still a country that's racked by, you know, famine, uh, inequality, oppression, uh, um, you know, violence. Uh, all the uh, uh, all the neoliberal levers, all the imperialist levers, in fact. Yeah, I mean, one can't help but think that the legacies of colonialism in, a, in, in well, many parts of the world, but I think in the Sudan, uh, well, at least in in uh, the the sort of work I've done on the country, uh, still plays a large part in the instability and the problems that those that, that, that both Sudan's face. Um, you know, there, for me, there are four colonial legacies that continue to, uh, you know, sort of create a huge amount of instability and um, inequality in those countries. The, the first is the arbitrary, artificial uh, uh, boundaries. You know, the, the countries of the countries don't actually reflect the historic, um, political, and economic and cultural. Uh, sort of uh, histories of those uh, parts of the world. So the Sudan is really a very, very artificial country. Um, I mean, all countries are in some ways, as we live in one that is incredibly artificial. Um, well, it's the concept of nation-states, isn't it? Yes. Which yeah, was sort of developed as a almost a commercial aspect, really. Yes, well, I mean, that's... You know, the, the states in Europe and other parts of the world that grew out of particular internal historical process, um, you know, still have problems, as we see with Spain and Belgium and, you know, countries that are, you know, sort of... Co- and, and Britain that are, you know, contesting um, nationality and, and so forth. But in places like Africa, the, um, the countries were really created by drawing lines on a map in, you know, in Europe. And, uh, and then conquered and, and colonised, uh, not with any real interest or concern or in involvement of the of the local people. And that legacy for me is still a major one. Uh, a lot of the contestation in a country like Sudan is between different elites who are uh, excluded or uh, either excluded from power or holding on uh, to power. And... Uh, and you know, the South Sudan was an example of um, of a elite that were trying to separate from, uh, you know, from this artificial country, and the events in Darfur really were an elite that were trying to get to to force inclusion into the uh, national project. So very different 
uh, reasons for why those parts of the world fought against uh, Khartoum. So it's a, it's a life and death struggle, and we're seeing life and death struggles all over the place, aren't we? I mean, with the arrival of uh, Trumpism in America, that's actually had effects all over the world. In uh, So the politic in Israel has changed because of their connection to uh, Trump and how Trump operates. But interestingly, in America, the increase in uh, hate crimes has been dramatic, and that includes attacks on Jewish people, Mm. which is a curious sort of imbalance, isn't it? uh, In some ways it is. I mean, prejudice knows no boundaries, I think, and once you start unleashing it, I mean, the history of anti-Semitism in America shouldn't be overlooked. Uh, you know, there's a very, uh, you know, the, the, the creation of the State of Israel wasn't a pro-Jewish um, sort of uh, um, act. It was a, you know, a geostrategic one. Yes. Um, pe- people forget that the reason that uh, Truman, well, I mean, the reason that Truman uh, voted or supported the creation of the State of Israel as many people have pointed out in scholarship. I mean, you know, there were a number of reasons, but one of them was that there was a large Jewish constituency that he was hoping to capture um, at election time. You had no real... Uh, he had no real uh, sort of affection for the Jewish people, as far as we can tell. And I think, you know, the history of anti-Semitism in the US, um, going right back to the 19th, 20th centuries, today often overlooked when people talk about the pro-Israeli... Um, element or, or, or feature of US foreign policy. So what you're really saying is that there's quite a big distinction between Zionism and Judaism, even at that level. Oh, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, this Zionism is a uh, now is a quite multifaceted um, uh, movement in the US that brings together conservatives. Um, Evangelicals and uh, right, a lot of right-wing Jews, uh, but it's not a Jewish movement uh, per se. There's an equally uh, vibrant uh, Jewish movement that's looking for a uh, far more fair and equitable settlement to the issues in um, in Palestine and Israel. Uh, they just don't have the voice or the resources or the power that the um, that the Zionist lobby has. Do you think that uh, Trump's arrival has uh, changed the politic uh, for Israel as well, say, Australia? So, for example, it's just been recently reported that uh, Bishop, our foreign minister, had decided to uh, snub the uh, uh, Chinese uh, delegation to in uh, preference to some commitment with Trump. Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt that, uh, that Trump has shifted... Uh, foreign policy and uh, and domestic politics and, and the, has emboldened certain um, elements in a lot of countries around the world, certainly emboldened elements here in Australia, um, who feel that Trump is a vindication of uh, sort of the neo or the conservative uh, uh, right wing, uh, racist, bigoted um, um, uh, sort of ide- ideological position or philosophical position that the, that they have. I mean, Hanson, you know, Pauline Hanson was the first people to cheer, the first person in Australia to cheer, and well, not the first, but she was one of the loudest um, to cheer when Trump won the election back in November. Um, you know, I think she felt it was a vindication of uh, 
of her own position. And as a result, you know, she and the people who support her have felt far more emboldened. You know, the 18C debate that we're having now, I think, um, you know, has gained strength from the uh, victory of Trump. Isn't it outrageous, uh, the removal of the word insult, humiliate, and what's the other word? Do you remember? Uh, insult, humiliate, and um, incite. In, yeah, isn't it outrageous? Yeah. I mean, basically what they're doing is saying that it's okay to humili- publicly humiliate somebody because of their their uh, background. It's just oh, unconscionable. It, 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 it's unconscionable. Yeah. And to in, introduce that legislation on Harmony Day. Um, what a disgrace. You know, I think that for me was the, the most, uh, the clearest indication of the uh, sort of, uh, what do you call it, the sort of bigoted nature of uh, the, 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 the... The core proposal. of the Liberal Party. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's quite interesting because uh, they also made a statement about multiculturalism. And if anybody has had any historical perspective, knows perfectly well that the Liberal Party, whatever its uh, uh, complexion, you know, uh, small L liberal or whatever, uh, has never supported multiculturalism. Never. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there is. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting alliance against 18C of neoconservative right-wing bigots and libertarians. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the libertarians, I think, in, in many cases, aren't racist or bigoted. They believe strongly in the removal of government from all, all aspects of private life. Um, so but, how, you know, how would they handle public humiliation of people? Well, they would say that society creates particular norms and conventions that regulate the way that people... Uh, so there's a, there's a, you know, there's a sort of uh, equilibrium in society that will uh, regulate the way that um, people will um, relate to each other. So they have a statistical uh, approach to this sort of thing. <laughs> Not an individualistic yeah. approach. Yes, I mean, it is, you know, <laughs> yes, everything is. At the end, we all live collectively, whether you're a libertarian or, <laughs> a, you know, or a communist um, who believes in communitarianism or, you know, socialist who believes in communism. Everyone, we live collectively. We don't live as individuals. That is one of the realities that we've known to, since right back to Aristotle, who said famously that... He, men, that humans are social animals. Um, you know, we don't, we, we don't live individually. And this is one of the, I think, one of the most important elements of, um, or one of the most important things to remind people of when they talk about individualism and individual rights, that individual rights come with responsibilities to other people. Mm. Um, and everyone believes that, whether you're a libertarian or, or not. Um, you know, uh, it is the crux of the matter, isn't it? Really, Noah. Everybody, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're talking with uh, Noah, Doctor Noah Pasil. It is really the crux of the matter, isn't it? This particular issue, you know, about society, uh, the rights of society, and the rights of the individual within society. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I listened to a very interesting lecture by Hugh McKay, uh, yep. you know, well-known sort of uh, social commentator and um, um, an intellectual, um, where he gave the Gandhi speech at UNSW late last year, and he talked about the erosion of community um, as possibly the most important uh, change in Australian society in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and, you know, it was a very, for me, it was a very powerful speech because, or very powerful lecture, because he, it was a reminder of how important our uh, sort of relations are with the people that are closest to us. Yes, we live in a globalised world, and there's all this rhetoric about globalisation and, and um, international or global connections and the ability to travel and to communicate with people around the world. But, you know, the... the the most important relationships we have are the physical ones that we inhabit every day, that we that we rely on to sustain us. Um, our neighbours, our uh, you know sort of our, our neighbourhood, our community, and the erosion of that, the removal of say you know the the local town hall or the the not the removal of it, but the denigration of that and the removal of social local social services and public services and the replacement of that with you know uh, large uh, shopping centers and uh, uh, consumer um, con- con- consumer needs has really eroded our sense of, of connection to our local spaces and well, that's actually um, I, funny you should say that because, uh, you know, in the Fair Work Commission's decision about the cutting penalty rates, one yeah. of the key elements of that is that public expectation is that services will be available 24 hours and that's why it's okay to cut penalty rates. That's actually part of their yeah. decision. And I, I, it's been month, uh, weeks now since it came out and I've been riding my bike and thinking about these thoughts and then I'm thinking... Why didn't they bring in the health professionals who talk about how working in the circadian rhythms and uh, uh, connection to health connections uh, to uh, loss of community and all those sort of stuff that goes with people who work odd hours? Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is, you know, the 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 things that we uh, often. You know, this move to cost-benefit and to mm. um, productivity and to ec- economising or giving an economic value to everything is, you know, for, I think has been, been an incredibly uh, counterproductive um, uh, sort of move in the last 20 or 30 years. I think it's been a disastrous one, actually, um, in so many ways, because the value of things, many of the value of the most important things that we have can't be valued, I should say, in monetary terms. That's true. You know, how, do you, how do we value community or community care or, uh, um, you know, the, the uh, support that one gets from neighbourhood or whatever it might be in monetary terms? And, you know, the other thing is there's the stark reality of living a good life. Recently, there's been some suicide deaths, and I'm not, you know, anybody who has difficulty in this area. They should be aware that there are services available. But uh, suicide deaths of high-performing 
sports people. And, you know, of course, they're right in the eye and uh, the media eye and the mainstream loves a good uh, uh, good sports person. But it's like, oh, you know, they retire and then they don't know what to do with themselves. This is an, uh, everything about being a excellent sports person is the pinnacle of the consumer society we live in. But it doesn't talk about how those people are going to live a good life. Yes. Yes. Well, we don't talk about how people live a good life. We talk about how people live a prosperous life. That's right. A productive life. A, um, you know, a um, economically enriched life. Um, but yes, I mean, we do value it because so many of the, so many of the, what would we call them? The stories that touch us are the stories about people who sacrifice economic or financial goals to... To, for, for a good cause or another. Yes. You know, when we think about the stories that really touch us, and, you know, we, we're constantly reminded of them through the news or through, you know, the way that people are rewarded. Um, in, but, you know, the, that, those seem like aberrations. Yeah, you know, those yeah. Those people are given, those people are held up because they do something that we, that no one else does, you know, that, that is, you know, in some way exceptional. But in fact, what we should be reminded in those moments is that that, that, should be the, that that should be what we all do. Or that is often what we all do. Actually, in that fact, that's what people do all the time. That's right. Exactly. Sorry, that's exactly what I meant to say. That in fact, this, these are people who may have, who symbolise what, we what we're all doing. That's exactly right. And this is why, it's interestingly enough, the exit poll showed that in the Western Australian uh, election that the cutting of the penalty rates was a huge decider in, in the vote and the reason for why there was such a big turning of the back to the Liberal Party. It wasn't just, oh, we've had enough of them because that could yeah. have easily been 10, 10 seats. No, no, they yeah. lost incredible amounts of seats because people are doing it tough and they're sick and tired of being... Uh, it, I mean, losing their penalty rates. What did my daughter say? My daughter works in mental health. She said they yeah. cut the penalty rates. Well, I'm sorry, nobody's going to turn up to work <laughs> because, you know, it's not a picnic working in uh, uh, oh, no. in her field. No, absolutely not. Um I mean, this is the thing. People, you know, I think the Liberal Party have forgotten that it was only a decade ago that John Howard went to an election on work choices and got absolutely battered. Yeah. That actually people's working conditions is not something that, they are, that can be quite easily eroded without a political, um, without a political kick in the pants. Um, Trump, so yesterday morning I was listening to, I, I've forgotten his name and I apologise to him because he's very articulate and impressive. The leader of the AFL-CIO, the Affiliation of Labor Movements in the US, so the the um, equivalent of Sally McManus here in Australia, the yep. head of the trade union movement, and he was asked about Trump and a whole range of things. And you know, one of the things he reminded us of is that much of the grievance and many of the reasons why people turn to Trump. Um, had to do with the fact that wages and and employment growth have stagnated for 30 years in the US. In fact, in real wage terms, um, um, wages 
the average wage has fallen in the US. That's right. Um, over 30 years since Reagan came to power. Now, what he was saying, and, you know, this is, this, you know, is Trump promised to fix that, but his policies already, I mean, with the, the draft budget that's come up, suggest that he will just further um, exacerbate that problem. Um, so his political future will rest on how well he can deal with the uh, problem of uh, wage uh, of wages and employment in the US and not how he deals with the Mexican border, China, Russia, you know, um, um, and a whole range of other things, even though that's where his rhetoric is often located. And the same thing for the Liberal Party in Australia. 18C will mean nothing to someone whose penalty rates have been uh, slashed. That's when right. When it comes to voting. When it comes to the time to put their tick on the... or, or their numbers on the boxes at the ballot... If they've been hit in the pocket by hundreds of dollars a week because of a policy uh, introduced by this federal government, they will not care whether 18C is there or not or whether, um, you know, Australia has a better relationship with China or the US or whether Australia supports Israel, Israeli expansion into the West Bank. What they will care about is the struggle, the increased struggle on a daily basis that they're now experiencing. That's uh, exactly right. Say, people who say that we don't live in a material, you know, where politics has become post-material, <laughs> I think have lost contact or connection with the daily hardships of the majority of people in our society. I think so too. I think that people have forgotten that food costs money and uh, the inflation rate, uh, the amount of uh, pr- everything goes up, the price of everything is going up, but people's wages aren't. Yeah. The US is the most unequal country of all countries in the OSC- OECD. Australia had, up until the mid-90s, Australia had a fairly good standing in terms of our e- sort of economic equality. And stand, but that has been slowly uh, eroded since then. Um, and some of the indicators are that we are heading in, entire, in, in, in a similar direction. We have one million people in Australia living in poverty. That's all right. Um, and I think people you know, are standing there saying, bing on the election. Yeah, but there's another large group of people. This is where the statistics are a little bit misleading. There's a large group of people, maybe about 20% of Australians, who are just above that. That's right. That could easily slip into that category, um, according to a number of very, very uh, good studies. And if that happens, suddenly we'll have 30%, a third of Australians, at least a third of Australians, living below the poverty line. Oh, that's interesting, because that's exactly the same actual amount of people that were affected by the Depression. The 30s depression. People think it was the entire country, but actually it was 30% of people who were basically lost in terms of the economic order. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we are on, you know, in many ways we're on the precipice. And Mm, um, I think the the cutting of penalty rates will affect so many people negatively, especially since Australia's moved in the direction of service, uh, the service economy, where... You know, many people are, uh, and many more people now are employed in retail, in um, shift work, in 
um, care work. You know, that, those are the grow, those are the industries that have grown over the last twenty, or the sectors that have grown over the last twenty years. Um, they're the people who will be affected, and most of them are on. Um, you know, uh, the, the, they're on roughly the average wage. What gives them some economic security is the extra money they're able to make from working um, weekends and public holidays. That's exactly right. We have to finish it there, Noah, and you're exactly oh, right. Okay. We have to finish it there. Okay. Well, um, I hopefully most people today are still getting penalty rates wherever they work, if they are working. Um, and... Um, we will continue this conversation in a little while, and yeah. if that's okay. Yeah, thanks very much, mate. See you soon. All right. See you ha- soon. Bye. Yeah, well, that was Dr Noah Pasil, and we do have to hurry up because we're coming right to the end. We uh, featured the... Uh, uh, no Homeless Ban Forum that happened on the 17th of March. We then went on to tell you about the uh, uh, Walk with West Palpua, which is going to start on um, March the 26th. Great idea, from Geelong to Footscray to show how close West Palpua really is, uh, the uh, silent genocide that's going on at our, on our doorsteps. If you want to go to the fundraiser, the Voice of West Palpua are holding on Saturday, Sunday, tomorrow, 6pm to 930 $10, Bendigo Hotel, 125 Johnson Street, Collingwood. Uh, you should get down there. Also, I should tell you that uh, the homeless, no homeless ban, but uh, the whole issue of uh, there not being public housing, uh, Martin Foley's office, 50 Lonsdale Street, 9am on Monday, be part of the demonstration against uh, the dis- uh closing down of public housing and uh, increasing homelessness. That's Martin Foley's office, 50 Lonsdale Street, 9am till 5pm on Monday. Coming up next is Publish... Oh, sorry. Nope, it's not. It's Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with West Palpua's George Malik. Talik. <laughs> listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.